Welcome back, everyone, to the Dice Pirates podcast. This is episode 17. Today, we have a very big episode. We're going to be talking about Kickstarter. Is it good for board gaming? How has it changed things? There's a lot to break down. And we have an exclusive interview with Jamie Stegmeier that we're going to get to in just a little bit. To break down this topic before we get to that, I am joined by hammock tester Matt. How you doing? Good. These hammocks are not working for me, man. Uh, first of all, uh, we have no coconut or palm, or palm trees on the SS Reiner Canizia with which to tie them. So uh, already, I, I mean, I'm just basically laying on a piece of fabric on the deck of the ship. This hammock is useless. I thought a hammock was just a piece of fabric. I need some trees, man. When are we going to go to a, a, a wonderful island oasis? Oh, we will take you to a wonderful island very soon where I'm sure you will spend quite some time. To join us as well, we also have Brig B&B renter Aaron. How you doing, Aaron? Oh, not too bad. Happy to be let out of my cage once again. We are, of course, very happy to have you here. And we do have some very exciting stuff to get to. But before we do that, of course, we're going to go ahead and do our soapbox. Do you guys have anything for us today? We do, actually. I thought it would be uh, a good good opportunity for us to weigh into a topic that is getting a lot of discussion in board gaming, and that is a recent blog post, a recent update by Isaac Childers on the progress of the much-anticipated Frosthaven. And in a recent update on his uh, website, he talked about some changes, some evaluation that's happening to the game's story, and that they have brought in a cultural uh, advisor to take a look at the game's depiction of the various peoples and groups and, for lack of a better word, races depicted in the game. And whether or not all of that is both sensitive, inclusive, or possibly even uh, unintentionally uh, harmful in some way, uh, reflecting back on real-world issues. And it's this kind of like self-reflection and examination of these themes of like race and identity in games that we're seeing more and more. And I think it's a really uh, healthy sign of the growth and evolution of storytelling and gaming. But, you know, it's not without controversy. It's not without some like heated reactions. And we've seen that been playing out across various gaming uh, news sites and forums. Uh, I know you guys have been following this topic. Uh, what do you guys think about this idea of taking a look at stories and games through the lens of cultural sensitivity? I feel like a, an important note that Isaac himself has made is that like this is 0% mechanical. None of this has anything to do with like the game of Frosthaven. He's still doing that. He's still got that locked down, packed in. This is just the presentation. This is the set dressing that goes around the game. And uh, he he said in an interview about this, I believe, uh, when he was talking... Actually, this may have just been from the update itself, where he was talking about, you know, when he set out to create the world of Gloomhaven, he had all these ideas, and he was like, well, of course, I'm not going to do anything insensitive because I'm not that type of person. But he's just him. He's just Isaac. So he can't see all of his inherent biases and all, all of the, the things that he's not thinking about because he's only got his own perspective. So I think it's uh, for someone who has created as vast uh, a world as Isaac, as somebody who, who's created a, a smash hit cultural phenomenon, something that is, that is taking over the world by storm and, and, and 
he's he's brought in a lot of money from a lot of people. I think it it's really cool that he said, okay, well, I've, since I'm creating this whole entire universe, I should maybe have somebody take a second pass just to to see if there's something that I missed. Because again, he's he's just Isaac. He's he's just one dude. So like, it totally makes sense, even if it's not a cultural consultant, even if it's just a professional editor with an eye for that sort of thing. I think that's a really good idea if you are creating something that is so big and involved just to to have have somebody else spot test it and, and make sure everything passes the sniff test. It is really cool to see him approaching this in a very sensitive way. You want to make sure that you're really taking a hard look at how the game is going to play for a lot of different people, especially, and I think it's very important to talk about Frosthaven, especially on this episode, because Gloomhaven, of course, one of the most backed games ever. Frosthaven looking to be just that way, if not potentially one of the largest games ever put out on Kickstarter. So it's one of the most far-reaching games of our hobby that we may have for some time, just in terms of the number, the numbers it has, the people it's reaching. And I mean, if you look at how many people are already talking about it, you know, it is just something that is kind of having another cultural moment. And so it's important to be very cautious about how you approach that. I think it's also really interesting to, once again, kind of going forward to some of the things we're going to talk about later in this episode, is this interaction that you have directly with consumers, people that are going to be enjoying your product, and the toxicity that can come from that. So Childress, obviously, he put out a statement where he explained that he got a cultural consultant. He wanted to make sure that he was being very sensitive in the way that he was putting things forward, didn't want to make any mistakes that he couldn't see, and people did not react very well. A lot of people got extremely upset about it, which is not something that is necessarily that surprising for anybody who has been paying attention to board games. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but it is, once again, just another example of how quickly things can turn on you and how easy it is to be exposed to a lot of the very nasty underbelly of sort of the community that can show up because they have the ability to interact directly there. And I I do want to, of course, we'll talk about that later, but I do want to quickly just very much commend Childress for the way that he was talking about this. You know, he says, certain cultures or societies may see varying traits as virtues and foster them in their population, but no culture is monolithic. And I think that was a very important way to put that for him because, yeah, you can definitely talk about different cultures as you create these various, you know, quote unquote, races within your world. It's important to also remember that, you know, there are differences in any group of individuals. And so it's very neat to see him approaching that, as well as with the story itself. One of the things that he mentioned is that the story of Frosthaven does deal with a lot of colonialism and the human nation. The story revolves around, around them pushing and enforcing a lot of that on the peoples around them. And something that he realized happened was that he sort of made the player complicit in that. And something that has been done as a result of those changes is making sure that if you don't want to take part in that, you have a way to fight back against that, which is a fantastic way to do that. You can keep the story you want, but you make sure that people, especially in a game that you're supposed to be able to play the way you want to play, people are not going to be put off by being railroaded into a set of choices or a set of morals that they do not have. I think you raised some really good points, and it is really good uh, and I think commendable to you that Isaac is taking a look at this. But I think it's helpful, too, with this conversation 
to understand what got us to this point, to kind of go all the way back to the games that brought us Gloomhaven and then Frosthaven, which is, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and the other uh, early role-playing games and their ilk. And they sort of introduced us to this idea that we've all got very familiar with and comfortable with, which is maybe not comfortable, but we've all gotten very familiar with, which is this idea of choose your race. You know, choose your race. Choose to be an elf, an orc, a dwarf, a gnome, a tiefling, a thingamabob. You know, and all these different races then become defined, as you said, uh, Ian, by these monolithic racial attributes. Orcs are brutish and tough, and elves are wise and fair, and uh, dragonborn are overpowered and should be removed from D&D. So there are all these different uh, monolithic descriptions of races. And... We've really reached a point now where I think uh, with everything that's going on culturally, with the size of the gaming and the industry and the size of the audience that are playing them, where it's just it's high time to take a look at what may be uh, some of the biases that may be underlying that idea. First of all, the use of the word race has always been really problematic. We've sort of internalized it, but it's not an accurate word to describe what you're doing there. And it comes loaded with all of these feelings. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes to as white male gamers to just see the word race and gloss over it but that that word means a lot in the real world to a lot of people so maybe that's not the right word when you're talking about the action of choosing what are essentially different alien species within a fictional universe but then the broader kind of bias that we've got to confront is this idea that you can define a broad swath of people with a big cultural brush like that and so you're seeing D&D confront that with Tasha's uh, Magical Cauldron of Things and Stuff, I think is what it's called. The uh, newest uh, supplement uh, that they just put out, which comes with some revised rules for how races and racial attributes and traits are dealt with. And sort of reframing that as being much more optional and giving players agency. So I think overall, uh, what we're seeing Isaac do is right in line with what the gaming industry is doing. But... It's you're right. I mean, there's pushback and there's a certain level of uncomfort there for people that grew up with a hobby. They either don't want to confront their own biases or they're afraid that this change is going to somehow ruin it. But Aaron, to your point, Frosthaven is still Frosthaven. You know, it's going to be a good game, even if it is uh, given, uh, you know, a polish on the story, which is awesome. Something that's worth pointing out is that Gloomhaven as big as it is and as huge as that game has gotten in uh, the landscape for us, that was the the product of one mad genius. Isaac Childers made that crazy huge game all by his lonesome. And so it makes sense that there were story decisions and things that he looks back on now and isn't necessarily satisfied with or particularly proud of because he was in it all alone with only his perspective really to, uh, to, to bounce off of and decide, is this appropriate? Does this make sense? The fact that he's at a place now as a creator where he's bringing more people into the room shows tremendous, I guess, I don't know if maturity or just growth or just vision on his part to so like, you know, let's, let's do better when we have the resources to do it. That's awesome. So um, I just don't know what to say to the folks that are getting upset about this. I mean, it's not taking anything away from Dungeons and Dragons to introduce the idea that not all orcs have to be brutish, evil people, you know, and it's not taking away anything from uh, Frosthaven to introduce the idea that the giant Yeti people that are probably going to populate this game have a diversity of ideas and opinions, and they're not just one thing. That's true to our world. It should be true within these fictional worlds. Yeah, it's really encouraging to see a creator, especially for a game this big, really pushing that. And Hopefully, on the the plus side, hopefully because of the reaction we've seen to this and so many large names, especially 
Jamie Stegmeyer himself posting on his blog talking about this. Hopefully this is something we actually see far more consistently now um, because of the response to this. But I do actually want to move on to a soapbox I have to talk about, and it dovetails very nicely with what you guys were talking about with Dungeons & Dragons and sort of the inclusivity that is being brought in now. Something I want to talk about is the upcoming Inspirals RPG. This is a tabletop RPG that was actually kickstarted last summer, and it is a Arthurian and Celtic folklore-focused RPG system that actually incorporates sign language to cast your spells during combat, which such a cool idea. That's very neat. But it also, you know, we're talking about inclusivity. It also brings in a group of people that, you know, oh, okay, this is the this is a game that actually uses sign language to, you know, enhance the world. It does something very interesting with it. It's something that was produced and made with the deaf community. There are actually many video tutorials that were actually produced with deaf consultants and something they put a lot of time and effort into. It's meant to be very inclusive down to the fonts that they chose from their books. They actually have fonts that are dyslexic friendly within their rule books. It's something that they have put a lot of thought into is making this a very inclusive and easily accessible RPG system, which I think is really awesome because of course, you know, we all look to D&D, but there are many other RPG systems that you can focus on and having it in a very cool setting, but also this much effort put into making sure that different people can get in is such an amazing idea. I agree. This looks phenomenal. I was not familiar with this. So I'm super glad that you brought this up and I'm looking at it. In addition to the great concept, I mean, it's just gorgeous looking, the art and design of the of the game world they're creating here. I think this is really cool and it points to something that I love about good like genre fiction, like speculative fiction or fantasy fiction. It should teach you a little bit more about the world you live in by putting you in the shoes of people different than yourself. And what better way to do that than putting you in an experience where you can kind of uh, experience sign language, this kind of lived experience that a lot of people have that most of us move through our lives and are never even aware of what that would be like to try to use our hands to communicate with the world. So this is a really cool concept. It creates a welcoming space. It helps people learn. That's what gaming's all about. That's really cool. You know, I think this is this is to, to spoil my my personal feelings on Kickstarter. You know, if you go to your, your local game store, you're definitely going to see Dungeons & Dragons. You'll probably see Pathfinder, and that's about it, which is a shame because there are untold thousands upon thousands upon thousands of role-playing game systems. This is something that, if it weren't for Kickstarter providing this democratization of creation and ideas... I don't know that this would have gotten made or even, you know, have, have gotten a wide reach that something like this really deserves. Absolutely. That's as perfect a time as any to move on to, of course, our main discussion, which is going to be Kickstarter. Before we jump into the nitty gritty itself, Aaron actually has a game for us where we're going to kind of guess some of the numbers that have been coming out of Kickstarter because they truly do boggle the mind. Come on down to your new game show, Kicking It with Aaron. All right, boys. So as I was, I was putting my, my, my notes and my thoughts together for this episode, in honor of the, the tradition of your show, of, of always doing your research, doing your homework, making sure you sit down a little bit more informed than when you had the idea, I went through and looked at the most funded 
tabletop games Kickstarters of all time. I knew that some of the numbers were really high. I had no idea my eyes started watering when I started looking at these. So do either of you happen to know what is the most funded, uh, by which I mean the one that raised the most dollars, the most funded tabletop games Kickstarter? I do have a guess, but I want to see what Matt thinks first. I think I know too. I just, well, I remember this being in the news a while back for making a lot of money. I can't remember if it still is. And I also can't remember the exact title, but it's one of these dumb games where it's like cats and hand grenades or something like that. Exploding kittens is my guess. Uh, You're both wrong. It is, in fact, Frosthaven. What? Already? It's not even out yet. Frosthaven was the most funded kickstarter of all time raised 12.9 million dollars 12.9 million dollars third most funded kickstarter on kickstarter across everything like of kickstarters not kickstarter board games but just of of kickstarters of since kickstarter launched way 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 back in 2009 this has raised the third most money. That's utterly mind-boggling. That's that's incredible. I can't believe they made that much money. And being the third most, before it's even out, that's that's actually incre- crazy to me. We're truly living in the era of the geek, right? When I get, when something like that can raise $12.9 million, Marvel movies are making billions, and uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons in a Box is making $12.9 million. That's awesome. And also frightening on some level. Last episode, two episodes ago, you guys were talking about uh, Simon's Marvel United X-Men edition. Didn't even break the top five Wow! for tabletop games. Man, do you have another one for us? Uh, Yes, so number two, uh, another cult favorite. So Frosthaven had 83,000 backers, made $12.9 million. Kingdom Death Monster, 1.5, a kind of... Ignominious, uh, a title in board gaming. Yeah. One that, uh, you know, kind of spoken in hushed whispers in the, the backs of convention halls, because where else are you going to play it? Uh, had only, again, Frosthaven, over 80,000 backers. Kingdom Death Monster, 1.5, just under 20,000 backers. So, like, a fourth of the people. A fourth of the people. Okay. Also remembering that that game comes in a like toddler coffin. Like I, I have to say over ten million. Surely, I feel like you're setting it up for it. Maybe it's all a mislead. Oh man, I think it's over. I think it's over. I remember this. This game is a bonkers. Just no, no. I just no. I refuse to believe the Kingdom Death Monster raised over ten million dollars. I, I I just cannot accept that. Kingdom Death Monster one point five. So again, this is the second Kickstarter for this game. Uh huh. Nineteen thousand backers raised over twelve point three million dollars, making this the fifth most funded Kickstarter ever. That game? Are you kidding me? Kingdom Death Monster? That game looks crazy. It's so expensive. Part of it is that, like every, it, the the whole thing is that you get this fifty thousand pound box of plastic sure. to cut out and paint. Because you don't get assembled minis, because every item in the game is a thing that you can actually put on your guy. Sure, yeah. If you find a little stone axe, you're going to like put it in your little guy's hand and snap it on there. 
this is on average about six hundred dollars per backer. Just just to throw that out, that's six hundred dollars per backer on, on this game. Just to really kind of give you guys a, a real idea of just how much money this is. Yeah, I guess I'm just incredulous that that many people have uh, that much money to uh, throw at hobby board games. Uh, I don't know that I spend six hundred dollars in a year on. I know that I don't spend six hundred dollars in a year on board games. I really would be shocked to know that I did. I have to tally it up. This is kind of like leading into again, kind of leading into the uh, you know the discussion on this. Some of the concerns I have is like, it, it are, are all the people that are backing this like, can they afford this? I mean, is this is this okay or is this like weird pressure environment and like gamified environment of Kickstarter? making people make irrational decisions like spending $600 on a box full of like sub game workshop minis. Uh, there, I said it. They're not that cool looking. All right. Now I've got, I've got one more just to, to wrap this up. So the fourth most funded tabletop games, Kickstarter of all time is exploding kittens from the, the, the people that brought us the oatmeal that, that launched a, a whole tidal wave of games in a similar venue. A, a modest 8.7 million, uh, but this has the honor of having the most backers. So this is the most back, not the most funded, but having the most people contribute toward this campaign. Just throw out a number. I'll give you a hint. It's it's more than 100,000 people. How many backers of Exploding how many How many backers? And this is the most backers that any Kickstarter campaign has ever had in the history of the website. Okay. How much money did it raise again? Eight point seven million. Eight point seven million for a game that probably costs about thirty bucks out of the box. Are you, are you going to do mental math right now? I'm I'm going to say around two hundred twenty-five thousand people back to this. That's a very specific number. I'm going to say five hundred thousand people. All right. Well, if we're doing prices right, you both lost. But Ian Ian was was absolutely the closest. 219,000 backers. Wow. 219,000 people. So I have two thoughts on this. First, we talked the other episode about Eric Lang's thoughts on gateway games and just the idea of, you know, sort of changing what we think about gateway games. If you want to talk about a gateway game, a game that is able to get people into the hobby, I mean, the reach that a game like Exploding Kittens had that is willing to open up people to doing something a little bit more interesting than uno or something like that you can't top that i mean two hundred and nineteen thousand backers on a game that then of course goes to stores and more people are going to find because everybody has it in their homes now. i was about to say and that's 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 two hundred nineteen thousand people on kickstarter on kickstarter and that was back in 2015 i think like that was years ago this was that, that was still back in the early days of kickstarter my second thought is this and i, I just when you look at the stats on Kickstarter and you really kind of get an idea of, you know, the amount of money going into this in almost every single stat games, which does include video games as well, but games as a stat is in almost every single category, the highest. And the vast majority of that are in fact, tabletop games. When you look at the number of total dollars that have been put into it, the number of live projects, the amount of live dollars, the only areas in which it does not come out on top 
are the number of launch projects in which it is closely beaten out and the number of unsuccessful dollars, which means that actually in terms of successful projects, games are actually one of the higher performing, which is bonkers when you think about just the Kickstarter in general. Games are such a massive success and it works really well for them. I still don't like Exploding Kittens. All that was really well stated, but I just need to make that point. <laughs> yeah, the uh, just just one final number, because I like numbers. Uh, All together, so you got Frosthaven, Kingdom Death Monster 1.5, the Wormwood Gaming Table, which, eh, kind of a, you know, but it's in the tabletop games category, so it's on the list. Exploding Kittens and recent uh, comer to the throne, Seventh Continent. All together, the top five... Tabletop games, Kickstarter projects have raised total over fifty million dollars. Wow! I mean, this is not—it's not a small hobby, folks. This is uh, this is big business. It's not—is Kickstarter having an impact? It's what's the impact? All right, so welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic this week, which is Kickstarter. Are we good? Are we good with this? So the the background of this uh, episode for us has really been some of the discussions that we've had uh, week after week, it felt like, in our intro topic where we kind of break down the latest news and there was some new uh, staggering uh, amount of uh, money that a game had raised uh, that week on uh, Kickstarter. And it really, the first one to kind of catch our attention was uh, several months back with the Stellaris uh, Kickstarter, a game uh, that did not seem to functionally exist uh, as a game when it was raising millions and millions of dollars, and yet it didn't really seem to stop the masses. And so it kind of got this question going in our minds of like, is is the relationship between game players, board games, and the board game industry, is all of this okay uh, as far as how it relates to Kickstarter? Is Kickstarter healthy? Is it bringing out the best in people? Are stretch goals and pressure tactics causing harm? But also, what are the good things? What types of games are being made that never would have been made if Kickstarter hadn't been a thing? And how has this whole crazy monolithic crowdfunding structure transformed this hobby? And so we wanted to have a discussion about that, and we did bring in an expert, Jamie Stegmaier, to help us understand it. But before we kind of do that, I want to have uh, spend a couple of moments here with Aaron, who has been back in games for a long time. And so just, Aaron, kind of walk us through your experience with Kickstarter and how you feel about uh, the experience as a fan, as somebody that backs a lot of games. Do you feel like things are in a good place right now with Kickstarter and board games? The the first board game Kickstarter I ever backed was way, way back in September of 2012, if you can imagine such a time, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and television was black and white. Uh, in, the, in the intervening almost decade, I have backed almost 200 board games, which was uh, a mind-blowing number to me when I pulled that number. <laughs> when you say it also, out loud like that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Also, uh, to show the, the grit and the dedication that I have in my heart, Kickstarter doesn't allow you to filter your backed projects by category. So if you want to know how many you've backed of a certain type, you just kind of got to load up the whole list and then count them. So that's the kind of insane person that you've invited to hang out with you. There is certainly a lot, anytime you get this much money going trading hands in one place, uh, like we said in the last segment, $50 million just in the top five projects, there are going to be some, some bad actors. There are going to be 
some people who mean well and get way over their heads and then everything crashes and burns around them. Uh, I think Kickstarter being kind of a, a self-selecting audience as the, the platform has matured and as people have gotten more familiar with what to expect from a Kickstarter and people have gotten better at how to present their Kickstarter, it, it certainly does become easier to separate the wheat from the chaff. Somebody can, and it, it happens especially in the uh, just general technology sector uh, of get gadgets and gizmos and portable hard drives and phone chargers. You see that all the time where somebody will uh, either have a whole project based around 3D renders and then they just cut and run with the money or it turns out that their project is just a thing that they bought on AliExpress and had branded and then drop shipped from the plant that was already making it. Is that a thing that you can do? I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to do that, but do you have some tips on how to do that if I were? Uh, phone chargers. Just everybody everybody loves a $20 phone charger. Just give it some weird like, oh, and this has uh, built-in Bluetooth, so it can also be a speaker. Put a speaker in it. Just it, money will rain down on you. I heard Frosthaven's gonna have a speaker in it. So I've I've been backing Kickstarter games for a while. I have I have certainly gotten a lot more discriminating in my tastes as well as the the types and the quality of projects that I back. There there are absolutely good things and bad things. Uh, I think one of the best parts about Kickstarter, for me personally, is that it lets weird games get made, like uh, uh, one of my favorite games, Fog of Love which is a two-player light role-playing game about two people in a relationship, and it's a romantic comedy. It's a really weird game. It's a hard elevator pitch, uh, but the, the guys that sit up and shut down the year that it came out just couldn't stop talking about it. They were like, oh my god, this is so great. You get everyone to sit down at the table, you have two people playing, and then everyone else is just spectating. I don't think you could have sold that to anyone like at a professional yeah. level. I mean that that's probably absolutely uh, the the heart of what makes Kickstarter great is the reality that really creative, weird, sometimes uh, what might outwardly look like an unmarketable idea gets uh, made as a game, and that's awesome. Things that concern me and the things that why we wanted to bring Jamie Stegmaier on to talk were really uh, what I'm seeing from the fan experience, the fear of missing out that seems to drive people to. Uh, back crazy large numbers of games at high levels, the way stretch goals are creating kind of a inflated uh, sense of uh, urgency and how the entire process has almost been gamified in a way to make consumers uh, maybe not make the best choices with their money. Yeah, and we wanted to bring in somebody who has been around since the early days of Kickstarter. Jamie Stegmeier's actually original project, the Kickstarter that got his company started was Viticulture back in August of 2012. He's somebody who has been very involved in that. And while he has been out of Kickstarter for some years, he was on that originally. That really began his process of a game designer. And of course, he has moved on to be incredibly successful from there. So we really wanted to bring him on to really lend an expert's opinion on this, of course. So without any further ado, we're going to go to our interview with Jamie Stegmaier. All right, so we are thrilled to have a special guest with us here today on the Dice Powers podcast. It's somebody that doesn't really need an introduction. 
Uh, if you're a board game fan, you probably have uh, one of his games within arm's reach right now. Uh, you know him from Scythe, Viticulture, and many other games. Thank you, Jamie Stagmeyer, for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Hey, Matt and Ian. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, and thank you for that nice introduction. Well, you know, we thought about you right away when we were thinking of doing a show on Kickstarter. And uh, kind of to give you some background on this, on our show the last couple of months, we just found ourselves talking more and more about what's going on with the state of Kickstarter and board game. Just kind of watching agog as so many games raise huge amounts of money and the kind of urgency around it. And we found ourselves asking, are we good? Is this okay? Uh, so we decided we wanted to reach out to someone who really knows the relationship between Kickstarter and games pretty closely. And so just to kind of start the conversation, I want to kind of start at a macro level for somebody who's been involved in games for a while now professionally. What has Kickstarter meant? How has it transformed the game industry in the last uh, decade or so? Yeah, a decade is a good, I think, benchmark for it. Back when I started to pay attention to Kickstarter, I think it was right around when it launched. Either It was either two, uh, 2008 or 2009. I was fascinated by it, and I started to see, about a year later, I started to see a few game projects on it. But it's amazing to look back at how few games were on it then, how little they raised compared to now, even though it seemed like a lot of money at the time, and the, the quality of the project pages, including some of my early projects, compared to the quality of the project pages today. All those things have just increased in quantity and quality exponentially over the last 10 years, like you said, a decade. So what has it meant uh, for the design side in terms of the process of like getting a game made? I mean, has it in some ways made getting an idea, particularly maybe if you're a new developer, getting it from idea to reality even easier? Are there downsides to Kickstarter? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a whole long podcast in itself. Are there downsides to Kickstarter? It, it definitely upsides, too. But uh, for the, I guess the first part of your question would be the easier one to focus on, which is... Uh, how, how, how has that impacted the design process, the publishing process a little bit? From the design process, I would say it's very encouraging that Kickstarter exists to designers who come up with pretty much any idea, any, any idea that they're willing to execute and put time into developing and playtesting. We've seen things, games that, that I, I don't think any publisher would have made without seeing its success on Kickstarter or without being able to fund it on Kickstarter, big games and small games alike. I come from a little bit of a place of privilege here because I got in pretty early and my company has done pretty well. But I am guessing that a lot of the smaller creators, just because there are so many small game companies trying to make games, that I, I think the queue, the line at uh, uh, manufacturers is probably getting pretty line, along at this point. It's a, it's a lot. You can't just jump in and, and, and have the game start to go to print right away. I, I think maybe smaller creators are probably having to wait a while before they can even start production because of the sheer quantity of games being produced and launched on Kickstarter. And that's not something I'd even really thought about is like the, just the number of games compared to what we used to have for sure. I mean, that changes a lot. I am curious because it's been, I think it's about five and a half years now since you decided to take Stonemaier games away from Kickstarter. You've blogged a lot about this and you've, you've wrote a lot about this. Is that a decision that you think you would make again today? Are there differences in the way that Kickstarter approaches or is that something you would maybe revisit if you were still on Kickstarter? A big part of that was where my company was in the life cycle of my company. So if I was starting a new company today, or if I had a game that I wanted to publish and I wanted to be more than just a designer, I wanted to actually run a company around a game, even if it was just for one game, I would, I would definitely go to Kickstarter. It, it's so much lower risk than investing a ton of money, a ton, a ton of time into launching a game that maybe nobody wants um, or a, any product that, that people may or may not want. 
if that's what if, I, I'm not sure if, that, if exactly that was the heart of your question, but if I was a new creator wanting to publish a game, I would absolutely go to Kickstarter or GameFound or um, or one of the other similar platforms. Because it's just a, the cost of entry is a lot easier to get into. It's easier to you've written about this, you know, understanding what people want, you know, the demand that you require. It requires a lot less from you upfront. Exactly. So I am curious, leading into our next question here, where, you know, we have seen some flops in board game Kickstarter, but for the most part, you've seen a lot more successes. You know, it kind of is very different from a lot of the early days of Kickstarter. Video games are, I think, a really good example of a medium that did not really succeed using Kickstarter. You had a lot of people that were abusing the platform. They did not succeed in what they were trying to do. Is that something that you worry about potentially happening with Kickstarter as it grows larger, as you have more people moving into this, is there a worry about a similar kind of thing happening? Well, I, I first want to say that I, I really like the way that you phrased that question. Um, I, I, you sent that one to me in advance. And I really like it because I think sometimes the media tends to focus on like the one project that goes really, really poorly. It's easy to focus on that one. And there are a few of those in the board game space, as you alluded to, but they're very rare, especially compared to, as you said, the video game industry. So I, I really like that you framed it that way. I'm, I'm, I hope people can really hear that. Um, does the risk go up as we have more projects on Kickstarter? Maybe to a certain extent, but I think while we, the number of creators and projects increase, I think how good backers are at discerning projects that are genuine and real and creators who can be trusted, that has gone up as well. Backers, A lot of backers know what to look for now and kind of look out for each other. Whereas 10 years ago, they didn't really know what to look for if there was a fraudulent Kickstarter project or someone who didn't know they were doing or had a timeline that was just outrageous for their project. Uh, but they, they think backers know that now. Yeah, the audience is definitely getting more informed about what a potentially successful Kickstarter looks like. And then also there's these, you know, name players now. They're just kind of always in the space or certain companies that they've delivered games. You know that this game is going to come out no matter how wildly ambitious or how many minis they threaten to throw in the box. This game right. is going to show up eventually. But one thing I am curious about, something we keep talking about on our, on our show, is this kind of FOMO and, and this urgency, the fear of missing out and the urgency that fans are feeling. So many fans are backing a lot of games at high levels, and some of that is being driven by the use of stretch goals. And there's almost a kind of gamification that's happening where publishers kind of know how to apply the pressure and make you feel like, gosh, I've got to get in there, and I've got to get in at a high level. Is that something that concerns you, like how publishers are using stretch goals? Is that a problem potentially for this approach to crowdfunding? I think it depends on how the stretch goals are Im implemented, specifically in terms of Kickstarter exclusives. Because if you have stretch goals that aren't exclusive, stretch, maybe the stretch goals are going into a future expansion or they'll be available from the publisher's website at a higher cost, but still available. I think that's very different than the fear of missing out that a publisher can create if they make those Kickstarter exclusives. That's one of the reasons that I moved away from those exclusives very early on, among other reasons. But I just didn't want, I didn't want to use a fear tactic to, to draw people to my project. It did, just didn't seem healthy to do that. So I agree that it's a problem. And I, I see it even more, more and more often these days, even from, uh, from uh, creators that I really, really admire. I, I'm genuinely surprised to continually see Kickstarter exclusives on the project. And I think maybe the one thing that I need to remind, remember is that people use that word in different ways. For me, a Kickstarter exclusive is something that is only available on that Kickstarter campaign and then never again. But I think that has a very fluid definition to some creators. Many of them say, you know, it's Kickstarter exclusive, but we will sell it later. And then to me, you just should use a different word there because you're tying back into that fear, even though you aren't using that word accurately. 
Yeah, it seems to me that it can uh, swing back in a couple of different ways uh, in regards to the relationship between fans and publishers. They might uh, make something exclusive, and it's causing people to feel afraid. They may back at a level that they wouldn't otherwise because they don't want to miss out on this exclusive item. But then sometimes uh, this quote-unquote exclusive shows up in retail later on, and then the folks that did back, you know, they feel a little bit burnt by that. Like you alluded to, uh, pretty early on, you moved away from Kickstarter, and something that I forgot... Uh, I went back and looked at the old Scythe Kickstarter, and you know there were no Kickstarter exclusives, even with Scythe. Yeah, Scythe, Scythe did pretty well at Kickstarter, especially for its time, uh, 1.8 million. And yeah, there were there were no exclusives on there. There were definitely promos. There were promos on the campaign that we included, but those promos are still available today. We still make them and sell them today, along with the metal coins and stuff like that. So I think that's Scythe is actually. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I don't always want to use examples for my projects, but I think that's a pretty good example that if you have. A game that appeals to a lot of people, you could use those promos for a long tail. Like we've made way more revenue from those promos and special upgrades by continuing to sell them over the years rather than just making it a one-time Kickstarter uh, cash grab. There's a little bit of judgment in that statement. I shouldn't really say that, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, and you show, I mean, you've shown over the course of your, your company's history, especially with, you know, the early successes that you had on Kickstarter that you do know how to create a model there that works for you. And I guess I'm curious, like, there are a lot more games that are being made, and it is easier for somebody to come up with a design, and maybe it gets attention, maybe it doesn't. But it feels like a lot of the very, very popular games, the ones that get a million dollars in a day or a million dollars a couple of days, do often kind of move this, they're often moving the same direction, you know? They're larger games, they have a lot of minis, and justifiably so, that costs more money to make, but is there a concern that there may be kind of this progression of the hobby to move in this one direction and prioritize a certain type of game over others because of the success of these? Or is that something that is just going to bound to be happen because some games just sort of grab attention more? It's a good question. Um, there, it's, and I know those are, those are the projects that, we, that are easiest for us to look at and, and catch our attention but at the same time, I, I still do see plenty of projects that uh, maybe they don't raise the million dollars or the, or the $5 million, but uh, like Canvas comes to mind recently. Canvas has done very well with the first Kickstarter, the follow-up Kickstarter, just because they made a good, unique game and they had presented it well. They didn't. I don't think they went over a million, but they sold, uh, I think they made like 50,000 copies of that game in the first print run from the combination of the Pledge Manager and the Kickstarter campaign. So... Uh, I see what you're saying. I, I think there are creators who certainly will look at those campaigns and think that's what I need to do to be successful on Kickstarter. But I hope there are other creators too. And I, I think there are who uh, look at the canvases of the world and think, I want to do something unique and different and special and make it beautiful. And it's okay that I don't raise a million dollars, but if I get 10,000 backers, that's a, that's a great way to start my company. Definitely seems like a very easy place to start. Like you mentioned, if you do want to start there, just the idea of being able to directly interact with your audience in the way that you haven't before. I realize that you have been out of it for some time, but one of the things you did write about was sort of this, as you interact with all these people very directly, you do tend to come in contact with the worst of human nature. Do you think that's something that Kickstarter has tried to solve, or is that still something that maybe people do run into, is sort of this, in the direct interaction with consumers, whether it's consumers to you know producers or producers to consumers, you do tend to end up with difficulties with that relationship. Is there progress made on that or is that still going to be one of the pitfalls of kickstarter unfortunately i think it's still a pitfall particularly while projects are live after a project is over if you have a truly toxic backer you can just even without their permission if you want to you can just refund their money and they can no longer make comments on the kickstarter page but during a campaign i think i think you can flag comments now uh, but i don't know if you could just 
take a backer off a project. I, I don't think they've enabled that. And that to me is really unfortunate. I, I understand I understand it a little bit because sometimes you might have a backer who is challenging you in a healthy way and on a bad day for a creator and really during a project every day is it's pretty stressful. So every, no day is a great day as a creator in Kickstarter. You might have those moments where you're like, I just don't want to deal with this. I'll just bump this backer. But they might be saying really valid criticism that, that inspires a good discussion. But delineating that between the bad actors, the very few toxic people on Kickstarter, and being able to, to remove them from a project to create a healthy atmosphere, I wish that was possible on Kickstarter. And I don't think it is. That's one of the things that I've really, really enjoyed with uh, build, continuing to build communities off of Kickstarter and places where I have a little bit more control over the moderation so that I can create healthy environments where people can challenge me in healthy ways and I can answer a wide variety of, of questions and criticisms on those platforms. So another question that I wanted to ask you, uh, I know you've written a, a good deal uh, on how-tos for somebody wanting to get started uh, in Kickstarter, and you've been really great about providing advice on your blog. But I'm curious, what would be your advice for a fan using Kickstarter? You know, how do you have a healthy relationship with backing games? If you want to get started backing games, what should you be looking for? What's a good project? And how do you make good decisions about where and when to invest your dollars? That's a great question. Yeah, I like looking at it from a backer perspective. That's really interesting. I don't write about that very much. For me as a backer, I am typically looking at a couple things. One, I'm looking at the presentation on the on the on the project page. So if there's if they're not only like beautiful beautiful art that draws me in because art is very subjective, but also the graphic design and the layout of the page itself. If care and attention has gone into that, and even the wording, if the page is very relatively typo free, if you can tell that they put a lot of care and attention and uh, a lot of testing into building that project page, that to me is a sign of a, a, way, a reason for me to trust that creator, showing that they put it, care mu as much about the project as, as I might as a, as a curious backer. And the other thing I look at is the price. Um, not necessarily because I'm extremely price sensitive, but I am, and I think like many people, I'm looking for value for what I'm, what I'm spending. As a publisher, I know how much games cost to make. And so what, sometimes when I see really overinflated prices on Kickstarter, I'm like, I, I know you didn't need to charge this much. Uh, this is different than retail where you're selling at a big discount to a distributor and then they're selling to a retailer, then they're selling to a consumer. This is creators going directly to consumers. The margins are very, very good. So if I see a price that is just really artificially overinflated, that's a big turnoff for me. And I think uh, that's something for backers to be discerning about as well. What about you guys? I'm, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that it's actually an interesting point because sometimes I don't know if uh, sometimes consumers really have a good sense of like what is a good price because we don't necessarily have that background knowledge of like what a game costs, you know? So what would be like a price range that would raise your eyebrows or what's something that would help consumers be a little more discerning? Uh, what should you be looking for? Well, let's use an example here because, it, you know, games cost very different amounts all over the place. But an example for my company is uh, Viticulture. Viticulture is a game that costs around $12 to make um, and it has an MSRP of $60. That's a big gap right there. But the gap is there because when we sell Viticulture to a distributor, that distributor pays us $24. They get a 60% discount because they need to make a margin and then they need to sell it to a retailer who needs to make a margin when they sell it to a customer. The price that we use is basically five times the manufacturing cost so that when we sell a copy of Viticulture, we can cover the cost of making it and we have enough money to either make a little bit of profit or to make another copy of Viticulture in the future. So that's the general formula. 
And so if you see a game that's similar to Viticulture on Kickstarter, but you see someone price it at $60, they don't need to do that because they're not selling that to a distributor. They could price it at a, a much more friendly, maybe not as low as 40, but I would say somewhere between 40 and 50 would be a reasonable, more reasonable price um, for a game like Viticulture with a, with a component similar to Viticulture. Just as like one reference point among many in the game industry. Yeah, yeah, it's it's probably incredibly complex. There's just there's so many different variables depending on how the game is being made and what exactly you're trying to put inside the box. But you do get a sense sometimes that like, okay, are these prices fair and and in the consumer's best interest? I mean, obviously everyone's trying to. Uh, it's a business. Everyone's trying to make money. You should have space for that, right? Right, right. It's interesting to me because you were asking kind of like what we're looking for. Well, so I'm I'm an odd duck in, in gaming in that I've actually never kickstarted a game. Never? Wow. I've, I've never kickstarted a game. It's something that I always look at uh, and end up just kind of like, I don't know, I want to see if this pans out. You know what I mean? I guess I'm just a very discerning gamer or, or maybe I'm just old because <laughs> I like to read the yeah. reviews or whatever. Yeah, I, I backed a random game a few months ago. Maybe it was last year called uh, Blabble. It was this little game that probably wouldn't get published by any publisher, but it was a little cooperative game that just had a really nice twist to it. Um, and I think there are lots of little hidden gems out there that uh, that are like first-time creators just trying to get their unique idea out there to the world. And I, I love that you're, you're thinking about supporting them, but it's also fine to support them on the back end too after they publish the game. It is really neat to get to see some of the smaller things, you know what I mean? For me personally, I... My initial interactions with Kickstarter were very much back during, you know, kind of the the heyday of the the video game Kickstarters, and yeah. uh, sort of witnessing sort of the the demise of that and the absolute crash that happened there. I've I've been very wary of Kickstarter for a long time, and so it is it is really good to get this kind of you know inside view and sort of understand sort of the way that works and kind of the machinations behind that because it does make it a lot easier to look and say, okay, yeah, I see these smaller, you know, smaller people, and it feels easier to support those, especially when. It feels like a lot of these bigger, you know, companies, the ones that make a lot of money, do put a lot of stretch goals out there, and you do get this sense of you're missing out if you don't commit the massive amount of money. So it's nice to, it is nice to look at the smaller ones and kind of get feel like you're getting a more complete package even for less money, which is very nice. And I'll, I'll add to that that I, for any small creator listening to this, that being small isn't an excuse for skimping on quality or skimping on community building and customer service. I think all those things are even more important when you're small than if you're a big company like Kumini or not. So uh, small can be small can be a powerful asset uh, as long as you you keep up the quality in all those other areas as well. Yeah. So talking about creators in the creator side, I mean, you do have a wealth of resources available on your blog, so it would be a lot to ask you to summarize all of that here. But just kind of top of mind, what are some of the major tips that you always give to somebody who's just trying to get started with the idea of kickstarting a game? A few beginning things that I ask people to think about. One is, do you want to be a game designer or do you want to run a publishing company? Because there are lots of people out there that just want to design a game, but they don't want to go through the hassle. If they really think about it, they, they may not want to go through the hassle of actually running a company around that game. Because it's a lot. Like my, my time, for example, running some of our games, I, I, at best, I get an hour or two of game design a day. Everything else is running the company. And we have two other full-time employees now. So that's just like a fraction a fraction of the work is game design if you're running a company. Two, I would say, if you haven't backed many Kickstarter projects like you, uh, I would back a few and follow them very closely through the eyes of a potential creator. Like pay attention to the things that, are, that a, another project, another creator does that really engage you, that are really fun, and the things that maybe make you impatient or frustrated. And take notes on all those things that you don't, uh, so that you're prepared when you run a project yourself. And the last thing I would suggest is to actually just start to build a project page. Kickstarter makes it really easy to start. 
Uh, you don't have to launch it. I would recommend not launching it. But if you if you have a even if you're just at the idea stage for your game, it's okay to start that project page and start to play around with what it might be like to have a game on Kickstarter. It's uh, extremely low barrier to entry just to start it and start to get a feel for all the different things that you can do behind the scenes with that project page. Yeah, that that's awesome. Th- those are some great tips. I do want to be sensitive to your time today, though, and thank you so much for joining us. But I did want to give you an opportunity uh, while you're here to talk a little bit about Red Rising. Oh, thanks. Uh, your latest game that's out now. I'm seeing it all over Instagram. Now, we haven't picked it up yet in our gaming group, but it looks really cool. Just tell us a little bit about your reaction to how that has landed and how people are responding to it, and maybe just a little bit about getting that game designed and the inspiration for it. Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking about that. Red Rising is a, is a book series that I, I absolutely love. Have either of you read the books by any chance? I've not, unfortunately. It's a, it's a great book series, and it's one that has reached a, a small level of popularity, but it's one that I love so much that I really wanted to build a game in that world and share it with other people. And so it's been a, a dream project for me for a long time, but in the end, I, I make games for other people. And so I, I spent a long time trying to figure out a way to bring this game to life so that it could appeal both to Red Rising fans and just gamers who, have nothing, who know nothing about what Red Rising is. Um, and we ended up coming up with a game with very simple mechanisms, but a lot of depth through the wide variety of unique character cards in the game. On your hand, on your turn, you're basically uh, just de- getting rid of a card from your hand and then adding a card to your hand, trying to build a, a powerful hand for the end of the game. I'm really happy with how it turned out. There are lots of you said you're a discerning gamer. There are lots of reviews about it out there now. With I think a, a pretty good, vast diversity of opinions. Some people like it, some people don't like it, uh, and and they express those opinions so people can know if it's a good game or not for them. But I'm happy with how it's turned out. It's been fun to, to do the pre-order for it, ship it, and to get it to retail in just a few weeks. It'll hit retail in two, exactly two weeks from today. That's great. That's definitely something to be looking out for. It looks really cool. Not knowing a lot about the, the world, the art is still really evocative, and the character designs are really interesting on there. So it certainly has caught my attention, even not being super familiar with the source material. So congratulations on that. It looks fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. I definitely would encourage people, anybody who is you know interested in learning more about Kickstarter, especially from Jamie himself, you know, there are lots of blogs on your website. I'm sure you have written a lot about this topic. There's way more information than, of course, we could ever cover in the time we have. But we really do appreciate you coming on and being willing to share some of that with us because it's definitely, I definitely learned a lot. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. I have one last thing I want to run by you because it's my dream and I feel like I may not get another opportunity to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Castles of Burgundy and it's the ugliest game that has ever <laughs> been made. Uh, I desperately want you to acquire the license for that game and I want uh, Stolenmeyer Games to uh, make a deluxe premium edition of Castles of Burgundy with incredible uh, components. The tiles would like sink down into this beautiful little tableau board and I'll spend $135 on it <laughs> if you make it. Uh, so I'm just putting this out there into reality uh, just to try to will it into existence. I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a little surprised when uh, I think a publisher did pick it up for a reprint or a new edition last year, but they didn't actually change much of the art. And I was like, why, why wouldn't you Why wouldn't you do that? If there was ever a game screaming uh, for that luxurious Stolenmeyer Games touch, it's uh, Castles of Burgundy. It needs uh, those great components, good quality cardboard. Anyway, that's my pitch to you. My consulting fee is very reasonable. I'll send you <laughs> And do you have a request like that as well? Oh, man, honestly, I'm just enjoying whatever comes out. I really enjoyed Pendulum recently. Oh, cool. Matt was not the biggest fan, but I personally loved that. I Oh, yeah, we had a whole episode about it. Yeah, we do have a whole episode about yeah. that, you know, and people can check <laughs> that out. But the um, I just, I love that, you know, not only do you have your own game designs, but you do sort of, you know, in the position that Stormire is, I really appreciate that you go out and you find games that have unique ideas behind them. Because, you know, that's like you said, that's something that, you know, even talking about Kickstarter, you get 
some of those games on Kickstarter, but a lot of those are not always found. And something I do appreciate is that Stonemire does seem to be looking for those games and, and kind of projects those beyond where they would reach normally. So just keep doing that. I love that. I love Pendulum. I'd love to see more of that concept. Okay, to, to be clear, I didn't dislike Pendulum. All right, so Pendulum broke my brain. Pendulum hurt my feelings. It was so hard. <laughs> the timers are going. I was sweating. It was a visceral experience playing Pendulum. <laughs> That's great. And yeah, I... I it, like like what you're saying there, you know, the way that we look for pretty unique, innovative games. And so they're going to end up being some hits and some misses. We made a game about birds a few years ago, and that ended up doing pretty well. And we made a game about timers, and that didn't do as well. But <laughs> some of them are going to work, some of them aren't going to work as well. Yeah, you got you to gotta swing for the fences. Right, right, exactly. All right, so we'll leave it there. Uh, Jamie, thanks again for making time for us. Uh, this was great. It was a pleasure. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for your time as well. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so that was our interview with Jamie Stegmeyer of uh, Stolmeyer Games. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I thought that was really fascinating. And I'm so grateful that he uh, made time for us out of his busy schedule to talk. One of the things I was really, uh, that really stuck with me after that conversation, and I was so glad he was willing to answer, was his perspective on how consumers can be a little bit better informed, being uh, smarter about price, being more discerning about games, and that can lead to a healthier relationship. Uh, Aaron, as a as our sort of our most avid Kickstarter of games, uh, what, what were your thoughts on his feelings on being a more informed, uh, proactive consumer? Yeah, uh, Jamie made some some really salient points. Uh, you have to appreciate how consistently open he is about this business of board games. Uh, he he is never one to shy away from talking about the business. Uh, he's he's one of the few companies that will share any kind of numbers whatsoever. Uh, but in regards to Kickstarters and, and being an informed consumer, I have definitely gotten a lot more discerning uh, as the years have come by. There was a time when I would back just about anything that caught my interest, and I had I had one Kickstarter that I backed in 2013 that got delivered last year. Wow. Um, that I had just given up hope on. I've luckily only ha- I've had one or two that just disappeared, but they were they were cheap things. And there there were a number of games that you know you back the game, and while the campaign's going, everything's on and popping. There's so much hype and energy and excitement. And then it finally gets home, and then you open up the box, and you're like, oh, I actually don't want this at all. And I have gotten a lot better at making sure that doesn't happen, at actually looking at the campaign and looking at the rules and looking at what other people are saying and watching the, the videos that come out. And, you know, when, when you're watching a, a video that is posted on the Kickstarter's page, like, it's really important to understand that they paid for that to be there that Rotto or Bowers Gaming Corner or John Gets Games or Paul Grogan with Gaming Rules, that's their job. Their job is to take your preview copy of a Kickstarter and make a nice edited video and present good talking points about the game. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. They're not journalists. You know, this isn't a a question of, of journalistic integrity. Their job is to like make rules explanation videos or to talk about the things that they like in board games, and that's wonderful. But you just kind of have to shift your attention away from 
how excited is Rado talking about this game? Because spoiler alert for every game that he talks about, it's 100% excited. And shift it to focus on the game itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's really the question to me is like, is this a game that you're really going to play? Or are you backing it because the hype cycle is taking over? And I think Jamie had some great perspective on how to be uh, smarter about that and how a lot of companies really are using stretch goals and exclusivity in a way that I think is bordering on exploitive, making people feel like they're going to miss out on this crazy little tchotchke that's only ever going to exist uh, and then sometimes still shows up in retail. I mean, that's really unfair. I think as gamers, we could probably do a better job about maybe not rewarding that behavior and, and we could potentially try to change that behavior. But that's that's really hard because so much of the herd mentality is around just like, exclusives, stretch goals, let's drive it up. And I think sometimes we get caught as fans in feeling a sense of like shared success with the companies. But it's not, you know, I'm not I'm not getting a cut of Simon if X-Men United 2, the Ninja Edition, makes uh, $50 million or something. I'm not making any money. I don't have any skin in this. So the only question that you should be asking yourself as a gamer is, does this game look legitimately fun to me? Would I actually play it? Or in certain niche cases, is this a cause or a or an issue that I think is worth putting my money on. It's a small game that I might rarely play, but I want to support them. Yeah, and Ian, I know you had some thoughts on, uh, we talked a good bit afterwards on uh, toxicity and how that continues to be an issue. Yeah, so this is something that we did mention in the interview, and I'm really glad that Jamie addressed it. And I mean, it, it was disappointing to hear that it's something that is, I mean, it's hard to address because of course you do have this direct communication between the developer and the people there. And like he mentioned, sometimes you need that feedback. Sometimes it's good to have that critical feedback. And on a bad day, you might just want to get rid of it all. And should you have that power? Maybe not. You know, maybe you need to have that. But at the same time, because of that connection, you can end up with some very toxic moments. Something that actually happened a couple months ago this year, a indie designer decided to make a tabletop RPG love letter to Warframe and he decided to post it. He had an artist who made fan art for this video game make some art for his game. He wanted to try doing something that was sort of a very much an homage to a game that he loved and he thought people would love as well. In hours after he posted this project, all of his social media was locked down. The project was canceled. You could not find him anywhere on the internet. People ate him alive. People got so upset because they said that he was stealing things from the game that they loved. He was committing copyright infringement. This was not the developers of this game saying that. These were fans that were mad that he was doing something that was not officially licensed or something that they thought was infringing on a game that they loved. Was that something that may have been a legal concern? Who knows? The fact of the matter is that the vitriol that he was met with caused him to retreat from the internet wholly because nowhere was safe for him. That's horrible. That's absolutely reprehensible. Whether or not the project was any good, the fact that the people backing the campaign had this much power and this much ability to communicate to somebody in that way is actually insane. And we mentioned this briefly, you know, about the Frost Haven and the toxicity there, but especially for smaller community members, people who do not have the backing that someone like Childress does. Somebody who is not going to be big enough that Jamie Stegmeier is going to write a blog post about cultural sensitivity in games. These smaller producers, people who may just be throwing something they're passionate about, if they are met with this sort of response, 
there's not a lot they can do about that. And because they're putting themselves out there, often these people, their entire lives are, are put up for display for people as well. So the toxicity aspect of Kickstarter is something that still concerns me. And I do hope that we see some adjustments made in that maybe moving forward. Yeah, I think that's something that Kickstarter is going to have to grapple with. I remember several weeks back, actually, I want to pause right here and say, too, if you, I highly recommend you look up a article on Dicebreaker.com by uh, Chase Carter on uh, the canceled Warframe-inspired RPG. Really worth reading if you uh, want to get a deep dive into a really kind of a rough episode So and, and learn a little more about what Ian's talking about. But to your point about toxicity, you know, several weeks back, we talked about the, uh, I guess, incident feels like too strong a word, but the kind of brouhaha that erupted on the Board Game Geeks forum over comments by board game designer Elizabeth Hartgrave, where she, you know, raised some really valid questions about the attire and the depiction of women on the cover of the game Tiny Epic Dungeons. A whole massive back and forth happened on Board Game Geek. Uh, the Board Game Geek administrators did a good job, maybe too good a job, of, of, of blocking accounts and deleting comments and really locking that conversation down. But if you went over to Tiny Epic Dungeon's Kickstarter page at that time, it was a wild west of comments that were, some of them were not great and hostile and bad. And uh, Kickstarter's uh, moderation of its community is, is pretty much non-existent. And I think it's just because the product has changed. I mean, I don't know that even Kickstarter envisioned it becoming such a massive forum for like discussion on a large scale and how online crowds can be mobilized, sometimes with incomplete information and go after somebody. So it is really scary. And I think a growing pain that Kickstarter needs to address is toxicity, uh, management of its community, and making that space a little bit healthier for everybody involved. There's definitely a lot of parts to Kickstarter that we're going to have to grapple with in the future. It is very interesting to look at the struggles that board games especially do face in the way that they approach things, whether it be these exclusive that really rely on FOMO, whether it be the toxicity of communities, whether it be how the monetization works. There's a lot of stuff that's going to have to be addressed, and especially as you get games like Frosthaven and Gloomhaven becoming so absolutely massive on Kickstarter. You're going to get more people looking at this. You're going to get more developers coming in, especially large ones. And you're really going to have to take an in-depth look. People are going to have to grapple with this for sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I we talked a lot about the idea of, like, is there a bubble? You know, is this going to burst and, and collapse someday? After talking with uh, Jamie, I'm definitely less concerned about that, understanding the differences in board game Kickstarter to video games and other industries. It is more stable than that. I think it is, for the most part, sustainable. The things that I am concerned about, though, are the exploitive tactics that some publishers are using. That still is my number one concern. Really exploitive use of stretch goals. Uh, pressure tactics, exclusivity, all of that forcing gamers to take action that maybe they wouldn't otherwise want to take. That's the type of stuff that I think it may create burnout, make it, may create fans uh, who are disenfranchised with the platform and the whole Kickstarter experience. And so I think publishers have a certain responsibility to do better in this space. But as gamers, I think it goes back to just being more informed. I think as, as, as consumers, we can do better about not rewarding bad tactics. And we can hopefully make this space healthier because the thing that I walked away with more than anything else was really uh, appreciating the value of this platform for making small, interesting, complex games a reality. We've talked about several on this episode, like Inspirals, this beautiful, touching role-playing game that incorporates sign language in a meaningful way. 
Aaron brought up the incredible example of Fog of Love or uh, so many other uh, unique niche games that never would have made it through the market testing and focus groups and all the other things that would have been required through the traditional publishing model. I mean, even Gloomhaven, the current number one game on Board Game Geek. Never would have gotten There is no way on this earth if he had walked up into any office and said, I would like to publish, and then the table collapses underneath the box, this, they'd have laughed him out of the room, and it would have just disappeared into iniquity. But that's, for for all of its ills, for all of the, the, the way that some companies really do take advantage of, of, of these terrible psychological tactics. It's really awesome, though, some of the stuff that comes out of it. I think if I was to sort of sum up my final thoughts and sort of my feelings towards Kickstarter after having this discussion, and especially the discussion with Jamie, is that there's sort of a dual nature to Kickstarter, especially as we know it now. There is Kickstarter by groups like CMON, where you know it's an established company, and when you approach it, Really, you should be approaching it as if you're going to the store and buying a game because you know it's going to come out and honestly, in many cases, probably also going to be in stores in, 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 for, for a lot of these bigger companies. So when you approach it, approach it as if you're actually buying a normal game, you're buying expansions. How much money do you want to spend on this? Look at it that way. But then there's the smaller set of Kickstarter, games like Inspirals, games like Fog of Love, these games that are smaller, that are harder to get out, games that may not get lit. You may not see them, actually. So I think you need to approach it in two different ways. There is, of course, sort of the very corporate side of Kickstarter, sort of as companies move towards this, you know, non-distribution-focused model. And then, of course, you have the smaller side. And so I think that's my biggest takeaway, is just sort of understanding that there are differences in the way you approach each Kickstarter, depending on the size. And really, if you're interested in, like, these interesting games, definitely looking at sort of the smaller side of Kickstarter is something I'm interested in doing, for sure. Yeah. Get past the the hype of the biggest, most omnipresent Kickstarters of the week and look for those niche titles that are doing something really interesting. That's my takeaway. That's my pledge. I'll say it out loud on the episode. If, you know, in the interview, I admitted that I'd never kickstarted a game. I will in 2021 kickstart a game and I want to look for a small, interesting title uh, that may or may not ever show up and that's fine, but I want to support somebody doing something interesting. And in fact, I'll even say if there's a Kickstarter out there that you think needs uh, my attention, message me uh, at the Dice Pirates, and I will take a look. This is something that we've definitely wanted to talk about for a long time, and I'm really glad that we did get the chance to not only have this discussion, but to bring on Jamie Stegmaier, and we do want to have a big thank you to him again, of course, for coming on Kickstarter, of course. It's not going anywhere, but we can definitely reassess the way that we approach it and very thoughtful in the way we deal with that. So that is our episode on Kickstarter. Definitely a big one. There's a lot to talk about there. And I'm sure that at some point down the road, there will be even more to talk about as Kickstarter continues to change the industry and our hobby. Big thank you to Jamie Stegmeyer for coming on. Red Rising, the game that he was talking about, Stone Meyer's newest game. On May 28th, it will be available everywhere, which of course, when you're listening to this, is already out. Definitely check that out. Looks very interesting. I've played it. It's a lot of fun. Aaron gives his thumbs up for that for sure. Aaron, we do want to thank you as well for coming on. Always a pleasure to have you. Of course. Happy to be here. So, Matt, if people do want to get in touch with us or if they want to give you suggestions on good Kickstarters that you can back, where can they get in touch with us? 
You can find us on Instagram at Dice Pirates. We do more than podcasts. You can find us there all week long, posting about the games we're playing, posting uh, cool stuff to the uh, Instagram story. Watch in amazement and horror as I misspell common words and uh, misuse its and its apostrophe S in disturbing ways. We always love getting to hear from you. Definitely do reach out and interact with us. We want to give a huge thank you to everybody who has been listening and following the podcast over the past year. It's been amazing to see the response. We just recently passed 1,000 downloads. Thank you so much to everybody. It's been amazing. And we do have some very exciting episodes that we are looking forward to bringing to you. We are going to be taking a break for the month of June. I actually am in the process of moving. Matt has some big things coming up as well, so we will be taking a break. But rest assured, we will be working and researching on some even more exciting topics that we'll be bringing to you when we come back. Absolutely. And I don't have big things coming up. I appreciate you saying that. I'm just going to be sitting around. But I'll see you guys again in July. I'm sure that you will be trying out all of those hammocks, and you'll have to let us know which one you liked the best. Hopefully you do get your Desert Island. Yeah, I'm I'm working on a hammock that you can play uh, board games in, but I keep spilling all my Carcassonne meeples. Well, you'll have to let us know how that goes, Matt. We will be back with another episode in July, but until then, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time here on The Dice Pirates. See ya. Bye. Bye.